This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Hi, mindful listeners. Hey, once again, thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. Listen, I'm going to just blurt out the episode of the show because I'm really excited about it. It's called, ready? Why doctors are pushing back. Yes, pushing back on surgeries and narcotics that don't work. And I want to get right into it because I have a doctor on the phone who's going to talk to me about this because we've talked about this a lot before. And I have to tell you, in many different categories of my life, whether it is my patients, whether it is a family member, a colleague, a friend, I know that they have been prescribed a narcotic, uh, mostly an opioid, and had had a problem um, with getting off of it. And obviously we know this is a huge epidemic in our country. And so I'm going to bring on right now, Dr. David A. Hanscom. He is a retired orthopedic spine surgeon, um, board certified. Uh, in, he, he is specialized in surgical correction complex spine problems in the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine. He has expertise in adult and pediatric spinal deformities, So understanding a lot about surgery, understanding a lot about the medications that usually go with surgery, but we're going to talk about why doctors are pushing back surgery and narcotics that don't work. Dr. Hanscom, thanks so much for being here. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. I mean, you've got a lot of projects going on and I want to get to those and you've done quite a bit, but you know, really are doctors pushing back? Well, it goes both ways. Um, I think physicians work extremely hard. They're well-intended. But the whole environment in medicine right now is pushing procedures, and most of them actually don't work. And it's really a financial situation due to the corporatization Mm -hmm. of medicine. What's happened the last 10 years is that hospitals are increasingly hiring physicians. And what's happened is that physician salaries have gone up something like 15% in 10 years. The Mm -hmm. hospital administration salary, middle management salary, has gone up 3,000%. And what they're doing, they're pushing us very hard to do profitable procedures, and the money's really just going right into their pocket. It's actually not translating directly into patient care. And they're pushing us harder and harder and harder. And we're hitting, as you probably have heard, we're hitting a tipping point of severe physician burnout. And what the corporatization of medicine is doing is that they're forcing us to see patients more quickly. They're not allowing us to talk to patients. They're literally asking us to do procedures that don't work because they have a high profit margin. And they talk about the quality of care, but they actually don't care. I, I hate to sound so cynical, but the last five years, this whole situation is completely out of control. I can talk a lot of expertise in spine surgery, but it's really happening in almost every arena of medicine right yeah. now. It's dangerous for patients. Yeah, I see that. I see that, and I hear that. And listen, listeners, we're going to get into this because I know that the doctor is setting up the problem. Uh, don't worry. We're going to be talking about the solution, and that's, that is the most important thing here. Um, but I think it's right. important to explore... This because I think that what you're saying that is the driving force behind so many procedures that are being performed that have been basically documented to be ineffective. Correct. Yeah, and then why do you think mainstream medicine, as you say, is kind of quote unquote pretending to practice medical care? Is it that financial piece? It is. I mean, I'm going to. I'll be really clear. I don't think mainstream medicine is mainstream medicine. They're categorically ignoring the data. It's been around for 50 years. There's multiple papers documenting that stress, anxiety, depression, lack of sleep, long-term disability, um, situational stress, all those things affect the body's chemistry, and what happens, procedures don't work. 
what we're doing, chronic pain is a complex problem. It has many parts to it. What medicine is doing right now is we're throwing random, simplistic procedures at a complex problem. It can't work. And guess what? It doesn't work. And then what is happening, which I'm going to be increasingly upset about, is that mainstream medicine throws darts at all these, quote, alternative medicine people, and they have their issues also. Nobody's perfect, but sure. the data also shows is that alternative medicine is actually more effective in chronic pain than traditional medicine. And mainstream medicine in field after field after field is, is actually being documented to ignore the data. For instance, there's a paper out of Baltimore that says only 10% of spine surgeons are acknowledging the risk factors that portend a poor outcome before they actually do the surgery. Wow. That's the big. doctors aren't guilt. I mean, the corporation of medicine is pushing us. The doctors aren't guiltless either. And I don't blame doctors for making a living because we are incentivized to be, quote, profitable. We're actually profiled by our hospital systems to see what our, our contribution is to the profit margin. We, we actually have computer programs that do that. There's also consultation firms that try to minimize the time spent with physicians so they can maximize the use of the procedures. What's also clear, which has become increasingly clear the last two years, is that Treatments are offered based on the fact whether they're covered by insurance or not. And if they're not, they're not offered. Almost every effective treatment for chronic pain is actually not covered because it's not profitable enough. It's the only field I know of, I would say probably not the only field, but it is one field that doesn't compete on quality and price. Yeah. I mean, and this is probably why it's so out of control. I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. And as you said, you know, quote, unquote, mainstream medicine, you and I have a different way of categorizing it. When I hear traditional medicine, I think of, um, I guess I think of going way back, you know, to like sort of the principles maybe that I'm guided by as a naturopathic doctor, um, where they're more comprehensive and you're, you're thinking of things that are influencing the body and you're remembering the, 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 the more, uh, all of the contributing factors, whether it be environment or, um, treating the whole person or identifying, treating the cause and such like that. And so I, I think I, I tend to, think about our mainstream medicine as conventional medicine. Um, but I wanted to get that clear because I was going to say conventional medicine, uh, and I know you're saying traditional medicine, but I think that's probably why it is so out of control. Like that, there, And I, I, I hear you. It's the, uh, the corporization of medicine, the doctors. I mean, that's a pretty staggering um, stat that you said at the top of the show as far as the income increases in the past years, as far as Right. middle management of hospital, and then the, the practitioners themselves. Correct. And it does not translate into quality care at all. When we talk about medicine, I mean, I agree that listening to the patient, understanding who they, who they are, is the essence of medicine. In other words, we know that the, talk, the doctor-patient relationship is the essence of healing, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually been documented to be a healing modality. With this emphasis on productivity, there's one group that wanted to have a new patient evaluation cut down to seven minutes make a surgical decision or not. That's it. And there's a paper written in 1927 by Dr. Francis Peabody called The Care of the Patient. He was concerned back in 1927 that technology was going to interfere with the patient-doctor relationship. What he didn't know back then was the neuroscience is that when you're under stress, for whatever reasons, it changes your body's chemistry, which translates into physical symptoms. Those when you're full of adrenaline, cortisol, and other stress chemicals, each organ responds in its own way. There's over 30 symptoms of a stressed nervous system, migraine, headaches, tinnitus, irritable bowel, spastic bladder, pain. When you're under stress, it doubles the nerve conduction because your body's in a hyper-alert state. You're on high alert. The nerve conduction doubles. You end up feeling pain that you would, would not ordinarily feel because you're under stress. Just asking the simple question, it doesn't take very long, by the way, 
simply what's going on, what's different yeah. in your life. And the yeah. stories are unbelievably disturbing. They're hard, tough stories. People suffer. Yeah, and I, I and think then, that above and beyond that, if, I, if you don't mind me adding to that, it's not very hard and doesn't take a long time to say, hey, tell me about what's going on. That Asking that question and, and using listening, as you say, as a healing modality. But also, I think it doesn't take much to remind you as a practitioner, uh, you know, surgeon or not, of the biochemistry and the physiology of the body and that the HPA access, the science is there. You know, we can get caught up into wellness terms that are very popular and, you know, they've been almost popularized by, you know, doctors on TV and uh, slang terms like leaky gut and adrenal fatigue and stuff like that. But the science, if you think about your physiology and your chemistry and your pathophysiology is there. Correct. It's right there. And it's categorically yes. not only being ignored, it's actually being spurned. It, it's just people, and so mainstream medicine, or what do you want to call today's medicine? What was the term? I say conventional medicine. Conventional medicine. Conventional medicine does not have a leg. To, yeah, they don't have a leg to stand on. They're throwing darts at every other type of practitioner. They have zero leg to stand on. They're not practicing what they know. Yeah, and and they're almost forced into this because of this um, corporatization, as you said, in the financial model that has just gotten out of control. So I want to switch a little bit to this opioid problem. I mean, I know you have a particular background. Why are you so familiar with this? Well, what's happened is that I was part of the I, – I practiced spine surgery for 32 years. By the way, I actually quit my spine surgery practice actually to pursue this project full time. I mean, I was at the peak of my career training fellows. The problem is so out of control that I simply quit my practice to to pursue wow. this full time. But I was in the 1990s where we were told to give medications to patients, and I don't think I get many patients hooked on it. I was always really careful with other things like sleep and stress, et cetera. But I was part of that era where we were taught this really sort of discriminatory to withhold narcotics if you thought a person needed pain relief. We didn't know the downside. About 15 years ago, they discovered that when you're on chronic opioids, it causes what's called upregulation of the nerve system. We not only build up a tolerance, you actually become sensitized to the impulses. It usually occurs if you're under over 100 milligrams of morphine or morphine equivalents. And what happened as I started this whole organized structured care program is that I, I dealt with people that were on hundreds and hundreds of milligrams of opioids a day, sometimes over 1,000. Hmm. And I was able, through dealing with other variables that affect pain, give people control of their own narcotics, allow them to start to wean down, and they would go to pain-free, no narcotics, no pain. But they had control. So I had a tremendous experience. I don't publicize, publicize this a lot, but I was in Sun Valley, Idaho, by myself on my own. I had no pain specialist, no resources. Basically became a fairly adept pain physician to dealing with narcotics and all the issues around it. By the way, one of the things that actually really helped bring people off narcotics were anti-anxiety drugs. In other words, we know this the mental pain that actually drives people more. It, it, mental pain causes more difficulty than physical pain. And what opioids do, they also address the mental pain, but it all manifests as anxiety. It was the anti-anxiety drug to help people give that bridge to actually come off the narcotics. Unrelenting anxiety is huh. intolerable, and until you can calm people down, well, you really can't get them off the narcotics. So can you explain to the listeners uh, what you mean by mental pain? The way that, the way every living creature on this planet survives as we process sensory input from our environment through all of our senses, eyes, ears, nose, taste, whatever. And when a physical threat is perceived, then your body secretes stress chemicals, adrenaline, cortisol, and histamines. 
and then you feel anxious. Anxiety is just a symptom. It's not a diagnosis. It's not a cause. It's a symptom. It describes the feeling generated by your body's stress chemicals. Just like when you're full of oxytocin, the love drug, dopamine, the reward drug, serotonin, the antidepressant, and the GABA drugs, which are anti-anxiety drugs, you feel relaxed, right? You never take the word relax and call that a diagnosis or a disease, right? Same mm. thing when you have these stress chemicals, you feel anxious. So anxiety is the word that describes the sensation generated by your body's stress chemicals. It's not the cause. It doesn't address the cause. It's just a symptom. It's a feedback loop. So when you feel anxious, you say, okay, my body's full of stress chemicals. Then you have to assess the threat, take action to solve it, and the stress chemicals drop, anxiety drops, right? The sensation generated that we call anxiety is so unpleasant that it compels us to take action to survive. And it is compelling because without that stimulus, we wouldn't survive. The species that didn't pay enough attention to their environmental cues didn't survive. In addition to survival of the fittest, is actually survival of the most anxious. The creatures living today, by definition, over millions of years, are the ones that are the most anxious. Humans have a major problem, which I call the cursive consciousness, is that the neuroscience shows that thoughts and concepts that are unpleasant go to a similar part of the brain, create the same chemical response, but you can't escape your thoughts. Every human being has some level of sustained stress chemicals because they can't escape thoughts. You can experience them, which creates ongoing chemical reactions. You can suppress them, which might suppress the feeling of anxiety, but your body chemistry is still up and other physical symptoms occur. Again, the stress chemicals translate into physical symptoms. So that mental threat or mental pain creates a chemical change in your body, which translates into physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. But you, feel, you also feel anxious. The reason why it's so critical to understand that anxiety is just a symptom, mm -hmm. not a diagnosis, not a cause, is that this survival response is approximately a million times stronger than the conscious brain. When you use psychological intervention to solve this anxiety response, it's not going to happen, right? I mean, it's a survival response. By the way, you can't get rid of anxiety. You don't want to get rid of anxiety because you wouldn't, you wouldn't survive. I mean, you need anxiety to stay alive. Right. But what you can do is that I'll just ask you a rhetorical question here. So you have anxiety. You feel anxious. Right. And we have all these different medications and talk therapies and stuff to calm down to solve anxiety. But the reality is you solve anxiety with really one simple concept. You decrease the stress chemicals. Right? Absolutely. So you can do that directly with mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, or a doctor-patient relationship where you feel safe, right? If you feel safe, it also helps you relax and bring in the relaxation chemicals. But the other thing, which is equally or more important, is that you use the concept of... Are your listeners familiar with the concept of neuroplasticity, where the brain yeah. changes every second? Sure. But just, just for those of you that aren't familiar, neuroplasticity is the property... Your brain changes every second. You get new connections, new neurons, new myelin. And what happens is that when I was in medical school, we felt that the brain was static, that you'd only lose nerve cells as you get older. It's not true. We know in chronic pain, your brain actually physically shrinks. When you treat chronic pain successfully, your brain actually re-expands. Every second, your brain is changing. And what you're doing, you can decrease anxiety, you can, you can decrease the stress chemicals by direct means, or you can decrease decrease the reactivity of your brain, and you, excuse me, you can stimulate your brain to change by a sequence of awareness, separation, reprogramming. You become aware of the automatic survival response. You, can you create a little bit of a space, 
and then you substitute. With repetition, your brain becomes less reactive, stress chemicals drop, anxiety drops. Mm. Now, again, when stress chemicals drop, your nerve conduction slows down, pain goes away. There. The science is there. So, I mean, I think you've established um, that the current approach from the conventional or mainstream medicine, uh, probably with governmental influence, is probably the worst possible solution for folks that are in pain because of how they're getting treated, how they're being prescribed to, and then the long-term consequences of those things, ineffective uh, procedures, as you say, opioid addiction, et cetera. You've mentioned some solutions, uh, but any more? What are the solutions? Well, again, the key issue is to teach each patient the strategies to decrease reactivity of the nervous system and to decrease the adrenaline, right? And so there's three parts of solving chronic pain. Chronic pain is actually a curable problem. It's not to be managed. Right now, medicine is separated the mind and the body. We're going to manage pain. How do you live with it? But the key issue really is training your brain to do something different. So the first step is understanding the problem. Chronic pain is now defined by the neuroscientists as an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences. and The memory can't be erased. So it's embedded in your brain, and all these procedures that you do actually don't solve it. You become aware of the nature of chronic pain, you become aware of the nature of your diagnosis to make sure nothing, something structural is not being missed. That's number one. So awareness is number one. The second aspect of it, that chronic pain is complicated. And so there's always multiple variables that affect pain, sleep, stress, physical conditioning, diet, etc. All those things affect the perception of pain. It's like fighting a forest fire. It takes multiple strategies to successfully fight a forest fire. Everything counts. The same thing in chronic pain, that everything works a little bit, but nothing works in isolation. For instance, better sleep could be 20% of the solution. Better stress management could be another 20-25%. Acupuncture, massage, different medications, et cetera, could be another 20-30%. The problem we get into treatment, whether it's medicine or other alternative forms of treatment, that we keep trying to hang our hats on one thing. Yeah. And each one thing contributes something, but it's that whole process together that solves a problem. The third part, which is most critical, since chronic pain is complicated, there's multiple parts to it, each person, of course, is very unique, that person has to take complete control of their care. Once you understand the problem, once you understand your variables, you can take complete control, and people do. Once you take control, it's just a matter of time. Yeah, that's great. You know, I it's, it's so wonderful what you just said because I think what you're doing, in a sense, is framing something that I have thought about and said pretty much many times uh, about the different systems of medicine. And what I would say conventional or Western allopathic medicine is good for uh, is, you know, that science of reductionism, reducing you to a, a, a symptom. I mean, I've gotten in a major motorcycle accident and have had a repeat volvulus. And there are times when I have depended on that type of care and I wouldn't have wanted anything differently. I wanted to right. be reduced to um, my particular, you know, life-threatening injuries and uh, uh, pain issues at the time. But in that system of reductionism, which if you go through the history of medicine, which I, I gave a talk at the University of Boston many, many years ago about the history of medicine, and I actually, you know, was I was learning more and more about things. Um, it really is a science of reductionism, reducing somebody to a lab test, to a diagnosis like anxiety, which you eloquently just expressed that relaxation is a diagnosis. Anxiety is not a diagnosis. Um, it's more of a consequence right. of other things. Love that. 
But if you, you know, usually the, when you when you are practicing reductionistic medicine, the treatment protocol usually is in the same form. Here, take this. This is going to fix that. If you get into different systems of medicine that are looking at more of the uh, contributing factors that are cumulative, um, what are all the contributing factors? And as you said, then the treatment program usually is follows that same suit as you know stress reduction is going to help better sleeping is going to help massage acupuncture uh you know the quality of your nutrition how your nutrients are informing your biochemistry it is looking more at the whole picture and you know a lot of times what i end up with my patients doing most of all is explaining that this is not easy medicine when i say that here take this as easy medicine if you get a prescription right. after a procedure that might have been ineffective and you go down to the pharmacy and you fill that prescription you pay your copay and you go home and you twist that cap off you know and both my farmers or both my parents by the way were pharmacists um you know and you take that medication that's easy medicine you don't have to think about too much more if you don't know any better once you start getting right. into, hey, there's a lot going on in our environment. Our modern day is full of compounded, confounded, you know, multiple stressors that, that, that we have to address each and every one of those categories that are contributing to the presenting pain, you know, or problem. It's not easy. And I think I spend a lot of time uh, kind of coaxing people and in coaching people and encouraging them that we've got to have skin in the game and this is going to take a little bit more time. It's not easy medicine. Right. But actually, it is easy compared to having medicine that doesn't work. I mean, one of the, dar of one of the darker sides of the whole process is that Harry Harlow was a scientist back in the 70s and 60s who looked at primates and detachment theory. And the way he would induce depression in his monkeys is that he put them in a cage that had sloped sides. They were scampered, scampered to the top, looked through this open screen, and of course, slide right back to the bottom. What would happen within about four to six hours, they would, they would become depressed. They wouldn't move. And when you pull them out of the cage, it would still stay depressed. In other words, repeatedly dashing hopes actually induces a depression. And right now, you know, we have all these different mental health disorders, et cetera, physical disorders, chronic pain affects over 100 million people. I mean, right now, medicine is not doing the right job. But since we're so efficient at delivering inefficient procedures, we're really harming a population very, very quickly. Plus, people trust their doctors. They trust us to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Part of it is we're not trained correctly. I mean, none of this was taught to me in medical school. I think mm -hmm. you might have read that I went through 15 years of chronic pain myself, starting in mm -hmm. 1988. I developed 17 of over 30 possible symptoms of chronic pain. I had migraine headaches. My ears were ringing. My feet were burning. There were skin rashes popping up. My stomach was a mess. Back pain, neck pain. I was a disaster. I had 17 of these symptoms for over 15 years, and it was brutal. So I had extreme chronic pain. The reason why I think that the process I laid out in my book, Back in Control, has been effective because I literally tried every millimeter of this thing myself. I learned it mostly by making mistakes. I finally figured out things that would happen. I finally figured out a sequence that made sense with the first step, simply understanding the problem. But I came out of chronic pain and by accident in 2003. It took me another five years to sort of figure out a little bit what happened. But it wasn't until the last five or six years of neuroscience research has it become crystal, crystal clear exactly what's going on. But medicine has separated out anxieties of psychological diagnosis. Again, this neurochemical survival reflex is a million times stronger than the conscious brain. Treating anxiety, first of all, is not a disease or a diagnosis. Treating it psychologically is the one thing that is actually destroying our society. We missed it. Medicine has missed it. Wow. All right. 
This is great. This is fascinating. And it's like, I want to continue talking to you for about four more hours. So we're going to have you back on, but I do want to give your website. Your website is backincontrol.com. You are involved right now in uh, some projects, especially books in progress. Um, What you should know about back surgery, a spine surgeon surprising advice, uh, chronic pain in your family, getting back in control, and then awake at the wound, athletic performance principles in the operating room. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, when you're full of adrenaline and cortisol, as you know, it's just on the blood supply to the brain, and you don't think clearly. We know that athletes and artists, as they stay relaxed, they're more focused and they perform better. My son was coached by a high-level performance coach years ago for his mogul skiing. As they watched him being coached, they realized that surgery was also performance. So basically what we do, we do mindfulness-based performance in the operating room. We get a little bit, we get a little bit upset or frustrated. We simply drop our shoulders, go to feel, we turn it into sort of a sculpting, enjoyable event instead of focus, focus, mm. focus. And my complication rate probably dropped 80%. It's so amazing. You know, that Dr. David Hanscom, thank you so much. Um, you, you're you up in the Puget Sound area, the Seattle area? I practiced in Seattle for 32 years. Um, I retired in December. Again, I'm writing this super called Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? A, a Surgeon Surprising Advice. And I'm simply pursuing this project full-time because, I, I, again, I see three to five patients every week who have surgeries either recommended or done on completely normal spines. And the downsides of these operations are just brutal, unbelievably yeah. bad. So it's what, bad enough to do surgery that doesn't work, but to have a surgery has such a significant downside in spine surgery we couldn't watch it anymore. And that's why I quit. Yeah. Well, you quit and you're going on to do great things. And and once again, I I'd love to have you back because I think there are other things for us to explore. You know, like you said, you've you've you know you've come from this area. You were trained in this area. And I have to say, and I'm going to end this for our, our listeners. When my patients come to me and go, why didn't my doctor say that? Why didn't my doctor do this? And I'm like, you know, it's not their fault. That is not how they are trained. Um, your right. training is very different and and almost groomed to be in this. Um, system that, as you you know, so eloquently said, is not working and is monetized and right. profitized and I don't know if that's a word. And uh, and the people that are suffering are certainly the folks under that system's care, and, and that's why we've got to change it. So once again, uh, backincontrol.com, uh, many books in the works, and but you're going to be hearing at least at least another time um, from Dr. Hanscom right here on Mindful Medicine, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>